0: so he offered to step down as a director. The privacy side is so important to me, he later said. He's been my friend for about a million years. The lawyers eventually determined that Campbell didn't need to resign from the board, but that he should step aside as co-lead director. He was replaced in that role by Andrea Jung of Avon. The SEC investigation ended up going nowhere and the board circled the wagons to protect Jobs from calls that he release more information. The press wanted us to blurt out more personal details, recalled Al Gore. It was really up to Steve to go beyond what the law requires, but he was adamant that he didn't want his privacy invaded. His wishes should be respected. When I asked Gore whether the board should have been more forthcoming at the beginning of 2009, when Jobs' health issues were far worse than shareholders were led to believe, he replied, We hired outside counsel to do a review of what the law required and what the best practices were, and we handled it all by the book. I sound defensive, but the criticism really pissed me off. One board member disagreed. Jerry York, the former CFO at Chrysler and IBM, Did not say anything publicly, but he confided to a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, off the record, that he was disgusted when he learned that the company had concealed Jobs' health problems in late 2008. Frankly, I wish I had resigned then. When York died in 2010, the journal put his comments on the record. York had also provided off the record information to Fortune which the magazine used when Jobs went on his third health leave in 2011. Some at Apple didn't believe the quotes attributed to York were accurate, since he had not officially raised objections at the time. But Bill Campbell knew that the reports rang true. York had complained to him in early 2009. Jerry had a little more white wine than he should have late at night, And he would call at two or three in the morning and say, What the fuck? I'm not buying that shit about his health. We've got to make sure. And then I'd call him the next morning and he'd say, Oh, fine. No problem. So on some of those evenings, I'm sure he got raggy and talked to reporters. Memphis The head of Jobs' oncology team was Stanford University's George Fisher, a leading researcher on gastrointestinal and colorectal cancers. He had been warning Jobs for months that he might have to consider a liver transplant, but that was the type of information that Jobs resisted processing. Powell was glad that Fisher kept raising the possibility because she knew it would take repeated proddings to get her husband to consider the idea. He finally became convinced in January 2009, just after he claimed his hormonal imbalance could be treated easily. But there was a problem. He was put on the wait list for a liver transplant in California, but it became clear he would never get one there in time. The number of available donors with his blood type was small. Also, the metrics used by the United Network for Organ Sharing, which establishes policies in the United States, favored those suffering from cirrhosis and hepatitis over cancer patients. There is no legal way for a patient, even one as wealthy as Jobs, to jump the queue, and he didn't. Recipients are chosen based on their MELD score, model for end-stage liver disease, which uses lab tests of hormone levels to determine how urgently a transplant is needed and on the length of time they have been waiting. Every donation is closely audited. Data are available on public websites, optn.transplant.hrsa.gov forward slash and you can monitor your status on the wait list at any time. Powell became the troller of the organ donation websites, checking in every night to see how many were on the wait lists, what their MELD scores were, and how long they had been on. You can do the math, which I did, and it would have been way past June before he got a liver in California, and the doctors felt that his liver would give out in about April she recalled. So she started asking questions and discovered that it was permissible to be on the list in two different states at the same time, which is something that about three percent of potential recipients do. Such multiple listing is not discouraged by policy, even though critics say it favors the rich, but it is difficult. There are two major requirements. The potential recipient had to be able to get to the chosen hospital within eight hours, which Jobs could do thanks to his plane, and the doctors from that hospital had to evaluate the patient in person before adding him or her to the list. George Riley, the San Francisco lawyer who often served as Apple's outside counsel, was a caring Tennessee gentleman, and he had become close to Jobs. His parents had both been doctors at Methodist University Hospital in Memphis. He was born there, and he was a friend of James Eason, who ran the Transplant Institute there. Eason's unit was one of the best and busiest in the nation. In 2008, he and his team did 121 liver transplants. He had no problem allowing people from elsewhere to multiple list in Memphis. It's not gaming the system, he said. It's people choosing where they want their health care. Some people would leave Tennessee to go to California or somewhere else to seek treatment. Now we have people coming from California to Tennessee. Riley arranged for Eason to fly to Palo Alto and conduct the required evaluation there. By late February 2009, Jobs had secured a place on the Tennessee list as well as the one in California, and the nervous waiting began. He was declining rapidly by the first week in March, and the waiting time was projected to be 21 days. It was dreadful, Powell recalled. It didn't look like we would make it in time. Every day became more excruciating. He moved up to third on the list by mid-March, then second, and finally first. But then days went by. The awful reality was that upcoming events like St. Patrick's Day and March Madness, Memphis was in the 2009 tournament and was a regional site, offered a greater likelihood of getting a donor because the drinking causes a spike in car accidents. Indeed, on the weekend of March 21st, 2009, A young man in his mid twenties was killed in a car crash, and his organs were made available. Jobs and his wife flew to Memphis, where they landed just before 4 a.m. and were met by Eason. A car was waiting on the tarmac, and everything was staged so that the admitting paperwork was done as they rushed to the hospital. The transplant was a success, but not reassuring. When the doctors took out his liver, They found spots on the peritoneum, the thin membrane that surrounds internal organs. In addition, there were tumors throughout the liver, which meant it was likely that the cancer had migrated elsewhere as well. It had apparently mutated and grown quickly. They took samples and did more genetic mapping. A few days later, they needed to perform another procedure. Jobs, against all advice— insisted they not pump out his stomach and when they sedated him he aspirated some of the contents into his lungs and developed pneumonia at that point they thought he might die as he described it later i almost died because in this routine procedure they blew it lorene was there and they flew my children in because they did not think i would make it through the night reed was looking at colleges with one of lorene's brothers We had a private plane pick him up near Dartmouth and tell them what was going on. A plane also picked up the girls. They thought it might be the last chance they had to see me conscious. But I made it. Powell took charge of overseeing the treatment, staying in the hospital room all day and watching each of the monitors vigilantly. Lorene was a beautiful tiger protecting him, recalled Johnny Ive, who came as soon as Jobs could receive visitors. Her mother and three brothers came down at various times to keep her company. Jobs' sister, Mona Simpson, also hovered protectively. She and George Riley were the only people Jobs would allow to fill in for Powell at his bedside. Laureen's family helped us take care of the kids. Her mom and brothers were great, Jobs later said. I was very fragile and not cooperative, but an experience like that binds you together in a deep way. Powell came every day at 7 a.m. and gathered the relevant data, which he put on a spreadsheet. It was very complicated because there were a lot of different things going on, she recalled. When James Eason and his team of doctors arrived at 9 a.m., She would have a meeting with them to coordinate all aspects of Jobs' treatment. At 9 p.m. before she left, she would prepare a report on how each of the vital signs and other measurements were trending, along with a set of questions she wanted answered the next day. It allowed me to engage my brain and stay focused, she recalled. Eason did what no one at Stanford had fully done— take charge of all aspects of the medical care. Since he ran the facility, he could coordinate the transplant recovery, cancer tests, pain treatments, nutrition, rehabilitation, and nursing. He would even stop at the convenience store to get the energy drinks Jobs liked. Two of the nurses were from tiny towns in Mississippi, and they became Jobs' favorites. They were solid family women And not intimidated by him. Eason arranged for them to be assigned only to jobs. To manage Steve, you have to be persistent, recalled Tim Cook. Eason managed Steve and forced him to do things that no one else could. Things that were good for him that may not have been pleasant. Despite all the coddling, Jobs at times almost went crazy. He chafed at not being in control and he sometimes hallucinated or became angry. Even when he was barely conscious, his strong personality came through. At one point, the pulmonologist tried to put a mask over his face when he was deeply sedated. Jobs ripped it off and mumbled that he hated the design and refused to wear it. Though barely able to speak, he ordered them to bring five different options for the mask, and he would pick a design he liked. The doctors looked at Powell, puzzled. She was finally able to distract him so they could put on the mask. He also hated the oxygen monitor they put on his finger. He told them it was ugly and too complex. He suggested ways it could be designed more simply. He was very attuned to every nuance of the environment and objects around him, and that drained him, Powell recalled. One day, when he was still floating in and out of consciousness, Powell's close friend, Catherine Smith, came to visit. Her relationship with Jobs had not always been the best, but Powell insisted that she come by the bedside. He motioned her over, signaled for a pad and pen, and wrote, I want my iPhone. Smith took it off the dresser and brought it to him. Taking her hand, he showed her the swipe-to-open function and made her play with the menus. Jobs' relationship with Lisa Brennan Jobs, his daughter with his first girlfriend, Chris Anne, had frayed. She had graduated from Harvard, moved to New York City, and rarely communicated with her father. But she flew down to Memphis twice, and he appreciated it. It meant a lot to me that she would do that, he recalled. Unfortunately, he didn't tell her at the time. Many of the people around Jobs found Lisa could be as demanding as her father, but Powell welcomed her and tried to get her involved. It was a relationship she wanted to restore. As Jobs got better, much of his feisty personality returned. He still had his bile ducts. When he started to recover, he passed quickly through the phase of gratitude and went right back into the mode of being grumpy and in charge, Cat Smith recalled. We were all wondering if he was going to come out of this with a kinder perspective, but he didn't. He also remained a finicky eater, which was more of a problem than ever. He would eat only fruit smoothies, and he would demand that seven or eight of them be lined up so he could find an option that might satisfy him. He would touch the spoon to his mouth for a tiny taste and pronounce, That's no good. That one's no good either. Finally, Eason pushed back. You know, this isn't a matter of taste, he lectured. Stop thinking of this as food. Start thinking of it as medicine. Job's mood buoyed when he was able to have visitors from Apple. Tim Cook came down regularly and filled him in on the progress of new products. You could see him brighten every time the talk turned to Apple, Cook said. It was like the light turned on. He loved the company deeply, and he seemed to live for the prospect of returning. Details would energize him. When Cook described a new model of the iPhone, Jobs spent the next hour discussing not only what to call it, they agreed on iPhone 3GS, but also the size and font of the G.S., including whether the letters should be capitalized, yes, and italicized, no. One day, Riley arranged a surprise after-hours visit to Sun Studio, the red-brick shrine where Elvis, Johnny Cash, B.B. King, and many other rock-and-roll pioneers recorded. They were given a private tour and a history lecture by one of the young staffers, who sat with Jobs on the cigarette-scarred bench that Jerry Lee Lewis used. Jobs was arguably the most influential person in the music industry at the time, but the kid didn't recognize him in his emaciated state. As they were leaving, Jobs told Riley, That kid was really smart. We should hire him for iTunes. So Riley called Eddie Q., who flew the boy out to California for an interview and ended up hiring him to help build the early R&B and rock and roll sections of iTunes. When Riley went back to see his friends at Sun Studio later, they said that it proved, as their slogan said, that your dreams can still come true at Sun Studio. Return at the end of May 2009, Jobs flew back from Memphis on his jet with his wife and sister. They were met at the San Jose airfield by Tim Cook and Johnny Ive, who came aboard as soon as the plane landed. You could see in his eyes his excitement at being back, Cook recalled. He had fight in him and was raring to go. Powell pulled out a bottle of sparkling apple cider and toasted her husband and everyone embraced. Ive was emotionally drained. He drove to Jobs' house from the airport and told him how hard it had been to keep things going while he was away. He also complained about the stories saying that Apple's innovation depended on Jobs and would disappear if he didn't return. I'm really hurt, Ive told him. He felt devastated, he said, and underappreciated. Jobs was likewise in a dark mental state after his return to Palo Alto. He was coming to grips with the thought that he might not be indispensable to the company. Apple stock had fared well while he was away, going from $82 when he announced his leave in January 2009 to $140 when he returned at the end of May. On one conference call with analysts, Shortly after Jobs went on leave, Cook departed from his unemotional style to give a rousing declaration of why Apple would continue to soar even with Jobs absent. We believe that we are on the face of the earth to make great products, and that's not changing. We are constantly focusing on innovating. We believe in the simple, not the complex. We believe that we need to own and control the primary technologies behind the products that we make and participate only in markets where we can make a significant contribution. We believe in saying no to thousands of projects so that we can really focus on the few that are truly important and meaningful to us. We believe in deep collaboration and cross-pollination of our groups which allow us to innovate in a way that others cannot. And frankly, we don't settle for anything less than excellence in every group in the company, and we have the self-honesty to admit when we're wrong and the courage to change. And I think, regardless of who is in what job, those values are so embedded in this company that Apple will do extremely well. It sounded like something Jobs would say and had said, but the press dubbed it the Cook Doctrine. Jobs was rankled and deeply depressed, especially about the last line. He didn't know whether to be proud or hurt that it might be true. There was talk that he might step aside and become chairman rather than CEO. That made him all the more motivated to get out of his bed, overcome the pain, and start taking his restorative long walks again. A board meeting was scheduled a few days after he returned, and Jobs surprised everyone by making an appearance. He ambled in and was able to stay for most of the meeting. By early June, he was holding daily meetings at his house, and by the end of the month, he was back at work. Would he now, after facing death, be more mellow? His colleagues quickly got an answer. On his first day back, he startled his top team by throwing a series of tantrums. He ripped apart people he had not seen for six months, tore up some marketing plans, and chewed out a couple of people whose work he found shoddy. But what was truly telling was the pronouncement he made to a couple of friends late that afternoon. I had the greatest time being back today, he said. I can't believe how creative I'm feeling and how the whole team is. Tim Cook took it in stride. I've never seen Steve hold back from expressing his view or passion, he later said, but that was good. Friends noted that Jobs had retained his feistiness. During his recuperation, he signed up for Comcast's high-definition cable service, and one day he called Brian Roberts, who ran the company. I thought he was calling to say something nice about it, Roberts recalled. Instead, he told me, it sucks. But Andy Hertzfeld noticed that, beneath the gruffness, Jobs had become more honest. Before, if you asked Steve for a favor, he might do the exact opposite, Hertzfeld said. That was the perversity in his nature. Now he actually tries to be helpful. His public return came on September 9th. When he took the stage at the company's regular fall music event, he got a standing ovation that lasted almost a minute. Then he opened on an unusually personal note by mentioning that he was the recipient of a liver donation. I wouldn't be here without such generosity, he said, so I hope all of us can be as generous and elect to become organ donors. After a moment of exultation, I'm vertical, I'm back at Apple, and I'm loving every day of it. He unveiled the new line of iPod Nanos with video cameras in nine different colors of anodized aluminum. By the beginning of 2010, he had recovered most of his strength, and he threw himself back into work for what would be one of his, and Apple's, most productive years. He had hit two consecutive home runs since launching Apple's digital hub strategy, the iPod and the iPhone. Now he was going to swing for another. Chapter 38, The iPad. Into the post PC era. You say you want a revolution. Back in 2002, Jobs had been annoyed by the Microsoft engineer who kept proselytizing about the tablet computer software he had developed, which allowed users to input information on the screen with a stylus or pen. A few manufacturers released tablet PCs that year using the software, but none made a dent in the universe. Jobs had been eager to show how it should be done right. No stylus but when he saw the multi-touch technology that Apple was developing, he had decided to use it first to make an iPhone. In the meantime, the tablet idea was percolating within the Macintosh hardware group. We have no plans to make a tablet, Jobs declared in an interview with Walt Mossberg in May 2003. It turns out people want keyboards. Tablets appeal to rich guys with plenty of other PCs and devices already. Like his statement about having a hormone imbalance, that was misleading. At most of his annual Top 100 retreats, the tablet was among the future projects discussed. We showed the idea off at many of these retreats because Steve never lost his desire to do a tablet, Phil Schiller recalled. The tablet project got a boost in 2007 when Jobs was considering ideas for a low-cost netbook computer. At an executive team brainstorming session one Monday, I've asked why it needed a keyboard hinged to the screen. That was expensive and bulky. Put the keyboard on the screen using a multi-touch interface, he suggested. Jobs agreed so the resources were directed to revving up the tablet project rather than designing a netbook. The process began with Jobs and Ive figuring out the right screen size. They had twenty models made, all rounded rectangles, of course, in slightly varying sizes and aspect ratios. Ive laid them out on a table in the design studio, and in the afternoon they would lift the velvet cloth, hiding them, and play with them. That's how we nailed what the screen size was, I've said. As usual, Jobs pushed for the purest possible simplicity. That required determining what was the core essence of the device. The answer, the display screen. So the guiding principle was that everything they did had to defer to the screen. How do we get out of the way so there aren't a ton of features and buttons that distract from the display, I've asked. At every step, Jobs pushed to remove and simplify. At one point, Jobs looked at the model and was slightly dissatisfied. It didn't feel casual and friendly enough so that you would naturally scoop it up and whisk it away. I've put his finger, so to speak, on the problem they needed to signal that you could grab it with one hand on impulse. The bottom of the edge needed to be slightly rounded so that you'd feel comfortable just scooping it up rather than lifting it carefully. That meant engineering had to design the necessary connection ports and buttons in a simple lip that was thin enough to wash away gently underneath. If you had been paying attention to patent filings, you would have noticed the one numbered D504889 that Apple applied for in March 2004 and was issued 14 months later. Among the inventors listed were Jobs and Ive. The application carried sketches of a rectangular electronic tablet with rounded edges, which looked just the way the iPad turned out, including one of a man holding it casually in his left hand while using his right index finger to touch the screen. Since the Macintosh computers were now using Intel chips, Jobs initially planned to use in the iPad the low-voltage Atom chip that Intel was developing. Paul Ottolini, Intel's CEO, was pushing hard to work together on a design, and Jobs' inclination was to trust him. His company was making the fastest processors in the world, but Intel was used to making processors for machines that plugged into a wall, not ones that had to preserve battery life. So Tony Fidel argued strongly for something based on the ARM architecture, which was simpler and used less power. Apple had been an early partner with ARM, and chips using its architecture were in the original iPhone. Fidel gathered support from other engineers and proved that it was possible to confront Jobs and turn him around. Wrong! 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 Fidel shouted at one meeting when Jobs insisted it was best to trust Intel to make a good mobile chip. Fidel even put his Apple badge on the table, threatening to resign. Eventually, Jobs relented. I hear you, he said. I'm not going to go against my best guys. In fact, he went to the other extreme. Apple licensed the ARM architecture, but it also bought a 150-person microprocessor design firm in Palo Alto called PA Semi and had it create a custom system-on-a-chip called the A4, which was based on the ARM architecture and manufactured in South Korea by Samsung. As Jobs recalled, At the high-performance end, Intel is the best. They build the fastest chip, if you don't care about power and cost. But they build just the processor on one chip, so it takes a lot of other parts. RA4 has the processor and the graphics, mobile operating system, and memory control all in the chip. We tried to help Intel, but they don't listen much. We've been telling them for years that their graphics suck. Every quarter, we schedule a meeting with me and our top three guys and Paul Ottolini. At the beginning, we were doing wonderful things together. They wanted this big joint project to do chips for future iPhones. There were two reasons we didn't go with them. One was that they are just really slow. They're like a steamship, not very flexible. We're used to going pretty fast. Second is that we just didn't want to teach them everything which they could go and sell to our competitors. According to Ottolini, it would have made sense for the iPad to use Intel chips. The problem, he said, was that Apple and Intel couldn't agree on price. Also, they disagreed on who would control the design. It was another example of Jobs' desire, indeed compulsion, to control every aspect of a product, from the silicon to the flesh. The Launch, January 2010 The usual excitement that Jobs was able to gin up for a product launch paled in comparison to the frenzy that built for the iPad unveiling on January 27, 2010, in San Francisco. The Economist put him on its cover, robed, haloed, and holding what was dubbed the Jesus Tablet. The Wall Street Journal struck a similarly exalted note. The last time there was this much excitement about a tablet, it had some commandments written on it. As if to underscore the historic nature of the launch, Jobs invited back many of the old-timers from his early Apple days. More poignantly, James Eason, who had performed his liver transplant the year before, and Jeffrey Norton, who had operated on his pancreas in 2004, were in the audience, sitting with his wife, his son, and Mona Simpson. Jobs did his usual masterly job of putting a new device into context, as he had done for the iPhone three years earlier. This time he put up a screen that showed an iPhone and a laptop with a question mark in between. The question is, is there room for something in the middle, he asked. That something would have to be good at web browsing, email, photos, video, music, games, and ebooks. He drove a stake through the heart of the netbook concept. Netbooks aren't better at anything, he said. The invited guests and employees cheered, but we have something that is. We call it the iPad. To underscore the casual nature of the iPad, Jobs ambled over to a comfortable leather chair and side table, actually, given his taste, it was a Le Corbusier chair and an Aero Saarinen table, and scooped one up. It's so much more intimate than a laptop, he enthused. He proceeded to surf to the New York Times website, send an email to Scott Forstall and Phil Schiller. Wow, we really are announcing the iPad. Flip through a photo album, use a calendar, zoom in on the Eiffel Tower on Google Maps, watch some video clips, Star Trek and Pixar's up, show off the iBook shelf, and play a song, Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, which he had played at the iPhone launch. Isn't that awesome? he asked. With his final slide, Jobs emphasized one of the themes of his life, which was embodied by the iPad, a sign showing the corner of Technology Street and Liberal Arts Street. The reason Apple can create products like the iPad is that we've always tried to be at the intersection of technology and liberal arts he concluded the iPad was the digital reincarnation of the whole earth catalog the place where creativity met tools for living for once the initial reaction was not a hallelujah chorus the iPad was not yet available it would go on sale in april and some who watched jobs's demo we're not quite sure what it was. An iPhone on steroids? I haven't been this let down since Snooky hooked up with the situation, wrote Newsweek's Daniel Lyons, who moonlighted as the fake Steve Jobs in an online parody. Gizmodo ran a contributor's piece headlined Eight Things That Suck About the iPad. No multitasking, no cameras, no flash. Even the name came in for ridicule in the blogosphere with snarky comments about feminine hygiene products and maxi-pads. The hashtag, iTampon, was the number three trending topic on Twitter that day. There was also the requisite dismissal from Bill Gates. I still think that some mixture of voice, the pen, and a real keyboard, in other words, a netbook will be the mainstream, he told Brent Schlender. So it's not like I sit there and feel the same way I did with the iPhone, where I say, Oh my God, Microsoft didn't aim high enough. It's a nice reader, but there's nothing on the iPad I look at and say, Oh, I wish Microsoft had done it. He continued to insist that the Microsoft approach of using a stylus for input would prevail. I've been predicting a tablet with a stylus for many years, he told me. I will eventually turn out to be right or be dead. The night after his announcement, Jobs was annoyed and depressed. As we gathered in his kitchen for dinner, he paced around the table, calling up emails and web pages on his iPhone. I got about 800 email messages in the last 24 hours, Most of them are complaining. There's no USB cord. There's no this, no that. Some of them are like, fuck you, how can you do that? I don't usually write people back, but I replied, your parents would be so proud of how you turned out. And some don't like the iPad name and on and on. I kind of got depressed today. It knocks you back a bit. He did get one congratulatory call that day that he appreciated from President Obama's Chief of Staff, Rahm Emanuel. But he noted at dinner that the President had not called him since taking office. The public carping subsided when the iPad went on sale in April and people got their hands on it. Both Time and Newsweek put it on the cover. The tough thing about writing about Apple products is that they come with a lot of hype wrapped around them, Lev Grossman wrote in Time. The other tough thing about writing about Apple products is that sometimes the hype is true. His main reservation, a substantive one, was that while it's a lovely device for consuming content, it doesn't do much to facilitate its creation. Computers. Especially the Macintosh had become tools that allowed people to make music, videos, websites, and blogs, which could be posted for the world to see. The iPad shifts the emphasis from creating content to merely absorbing and manipulating it. It mutes you, turns you back into a passive consumer of other people's masterpieces. It was a criticism Jobs took to heart he set about making sure that the next version of the iPad would emphasize ways to facilitate artistic creation by the user. Newsweek's cover line was, What's so great about the iPad? Everything. Daniel Lyons, who had zapped it with his snooky comment at the launch, revised his opinion. My first thought as I watched Jobs run through his demo was that it seemed like no big deal, he wrote. It's a bigger version of the iPod Touch, right? Then I got a chance to use an iPad, and it hit me. I want one. Lyons, like others, realized that this was Jobs' pet project, and it embodied all that he stood for. He has an uncanny ability to cook up gadgets that we didn't know we needed, but then suddenly can't live without, he wrote. A closed system may be the only way to deliver the kind of techno-zen experience that Apple has become known for. Most of the debate over the iPad centered on the issue of whether its closed end-to-end integration was brilliant or doomed. Google was starting to play a role similar to the one Microsoft had played in the 1980s, offering a mobile platform, Android, that was open and could be used by all hardware makers. Fortune staged a debate on this issue in its pages. There's no excuse to be closed, wrote Michael Copeland, but his colleague, John Fort, rebutted. Closed systems get a bad rap, but they work beautifully and users benefit. Probably no one in tech has proved this more convincingly than Steve Jobs. By bundling hardware, software, and services, and controlling them tightly, Apple is consistently able to get the jump on its rivals and roll out polished products. They agreed that the iPad would be the clearest test of this question since the original Macintosh. Apple has taken its control freak rep to a whole new level with the A4 chip that powers the thing, wrote Fort. Cupertino now has absolute say over the silicon, device, operating system, app store, and payment system. Jobs went to the Apple store in Palo Alto shortly before noon on April 5, the day the iPad went on sale. Daniel Kotke, his acid-dropping soulmate from Reed and the early days at Apple, who no longer harbored a grudge for not getting Founders' stock options, made a point of being there. It had been fifteen years, and I wanted to see him again, Kotke recounted. I grabbed him and told him I was going to use the iPad for my song lyrics. He was in a great mood, and we had a nice chat after all these years. Powell and their youngest child, Eve, watched from a corner of the store. Wozniak, who had once been a proponent of making hardware and software as open as possible, continued to revise that opinion. As he often did, he stayed up all night with the enthusiasts waiting in line for the store to open. This time he was at San Jose's Valley Fair Mall riding a Segway. A reporter asked him about the closed nature of Apple's ecosystem. Apple gets you into their playpen and keeps you there, but there are some advantages to that, he replied. I like open systems, but I'm a hacker. But most people want things that are easy to use. Steve's genius is that he knows how to make things simple, and that sometimes requires controlling everything. The question, What's on your iPad? replaced What's on your iPod? Even President Obama's staffers, who embraced the iPad as a mark of their tech hipness, played the game. Economic advisor Larry Summers had the Bloomberg financial information app, Scrabble, and the Federalist Papers. Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel had a slew of newspapers. Communications advisor Bill Burton had Vanity Fair and one entire season of the television series Lost. And political director David Axelrod had Major League Baseball and NPR. Jobs was stirred by a story, which he forwarded to me by Michael Noor on Forbes.com. Noor was reading a science fiction novel on his iPad while staying at a dairy farm in a rural area north of Bogota, Colombia, when a poor six-year-old boy who cleaned the stables came up to him. Curious, Noor handed him the device. With no instruction and never having seen a computer before, the boy started using it intuitively. He began swiping the screen, launching apps, playing a pinball game. Steve Jobs has designed a powerful computer that an illiterate six-year-old can use without instruction, Noor wrote. If that isn't magical, I don't know what is. In less than a month, Apple sold one million iPads. That was twice as fast as it took the iPhone to reach that mark. By March 2011, nine months after its release, fifteen million had been sold. By some measures, it became the most successful consumer product launch in history. Advertising Jobs was not happy with the original ads for the iPad. As usual, he threw himself into the marketing, working with James Vincent and Duncan Milner at the ad agency, now called TBWA Media Arts Lab, with Lee Clow advising from a semi-retired perch. The commercial they first produced was a gentle scene of a guy in faded jeans and sweatshirt reclining in a chair, looking at email, a photo album, the New York Times, books, and video on an iPad propped on his lap. There were no words, just the background beat of There Goes My Love by the Blue Van. After he approved it, Steve decided he hated it, Vincent recalled. He thought it looked like a Pottery Barn commercial. Jobs later told me, It had been easy to explain what the iPod was, a thousand songs in your pocket, which allowed us to move quickly to the iconic silhouette ads. But it was hard to explain what an iPad was. We didn't want to show it as a computer, and yet we didn't want to make it so soft that it looked like a cute TV. The first set of ads showed we didn't know what we were doing. They had a cashmere and hush puppies feel to them. James Vincent had not taken a break in months, so when the iPad finally went on sale and the ads started airing, he drove with his family to the Coachella Music Festival in Palm Springs, which featured some of his favorite bands, including Muse, Faith No More, and Devo. Soon after he arrived, Jobs called. Your commercials suck, he said. The iPad is revolutionizing the world, and we need something big. You've given me small shit. Well, what do you want? Vincent shot back. You've not been able to tell me what you want. I don't know, Jobs said. You have to bring me something new. Nothing you've shown me is even close. Vincent argued back and suddenly Jobs went ballistic. He just started screaming at me, Vincent recalled. Vincent could be volatile himself, and the volleys escalated. When Vincent shouted, you've got to tell me what you want, Jobs shot back, you've got to show me some stuff and I'll know it when I see it. Oh, great. Let me write that on my brief for my creative people. I'll know it when I see it. Vincent got so frustrated that he slammed his fist into the wall of the house he was renting and put a large dent in it. When he finally went outside to his family, sitting by the pool, they looked at him nervously. Are you okay? his wife finally asked. It took Vincent and his team two weeks to come up with an array of new options, and he asked to present them at Jobs' house rather than the office hoping that it would be a more relaxed environment. Laying storyboards on the coffee table, he and Milner offered twelve approaches. One was inspirational and stirring. Another tried humor, with Michael Sarah, the comic actor, wandering through a fake house making funny comments about the way people could use iPads. Others featured the iPad with celebrities or set starkly on a white background, or starring in a little sitcom, or in a straightforward product demonstration. After mulling over the options, Jobs realized what he wanted. Not humor, nor celebrity, nor a demo. It's got to make a statement, he said. It needs to be a manifesto. This is big. He had announced that the iPad would change the world and he wanted a campaign that reinforced that declaration. Other companies would come out with copycat tablets in a year or so, he said, and he wanted people to remember that the iPad was the real thing. We need ads that stand up and declare what we have done. He abruptly got out of his chair, looking a bit weak but smiling. I've got to go have a massage now, he said. Get to work. So Vincent and Milner, along with the copywriter, Eric Grunbaum, began crafting what they dubbed The Manifesto. It would be fast-paced, with vibrant pictures and a thumping beat, and it would proclaim that the iPad was revolutionary. The music they chose was Karen O.'s pounding refrain from the Yeah, yeah, yeah's Gold Lion. As the iPad was shown doing magical things, A strong voice declared, iPad is thin, iPad is beautiful, it's crazy powerful, it's magical, it's video, photos, more books than you could read in a lifetime, it's already a revolution, and it's only just begun. Once the manifesto ads had run their course, the team again tried something softer, shot as day-in-the-life documentaries by the young filmmaker Jessica Sanders. Jobs liked them for a little while. Then he turned against them for the same reason he had reacted against the original Pottery Barn-style ads. Damn it, he shouted. They look like a Visa commercial, typical ad agency stuff. He had been asking for ads that were different and new. But eventually, he realized he did not want to stray from what he considered the Apple voice. For him, that voice had a distinctive set of qualities—simple, declarative, clean. We went down that lifestyle path, and it seemed to be growing on Steve, and suddenly he said, I hate that stuff, it's not Apple, recalled Lee Clow. He told us to get back to the Apple voice. It's a very simple, honest voice. And so they went back to a clean, white background with just a close-up showing off all the things that iPad is and could do. Apps The iPad commercials were not about the device, but about what you could do with it. Indeed, its success came not just from the beauty of the hardware, but from the applications, known as apps, that allowed you to indulge in all sorts of delightful activities. There were thousands, and soon hundreds of thousands of apps that you could download for free or for a few dollars. You could sling angry birds with the swipe of your finger, track your stocks, watch movies, read books and magazines, catch up on the news, play games, and waste glorious amounts of time. Once again, The integration of the hardware, software, and store made it easy. But the apps also allowed the platform to be sort of open, in a very controlled way, to outside developers who wanted to create software and content for it, open, that is, like a carefully curated and gated community garden. The app's phenomenon began with the iPhone. When it first came out in early 2007, There were no apps you could buy from outside developers, and Jobs initially resisted allowing them. He didn't want outsiders to create applications for the iPhone that could mess it up, infect it with viruses, or pollute its integrity. Board member Art Levinson was among those pushing to allow iPhone apps. I called him a half-dozen times to lobby for the potential of the apps, he recalled, If Apple didn't allow them, indeed encourage them, another smartphone maker would, giving itself a competitive advantage. Apple's marketing chief, Phil Schiller, agreed. I couldn't imagine that we would create something as powerful as the iPhone and not empower developers to make lots of apps, he recalled. I knew customers would love them. From the outside... The venture capitalist John Doerr argued that permitting apps would spawn a profusion of new entrepreneurs who would create new services. Jobs at first quashed the discussion, partly because he felt his team did not have the bandwidth to figure out all of the complexities that would be involved in policing third-party app developers. He wanted focus. So he didn't want to talk about it, said Schiller. But as soon as the iPhone was launched, he was willing to hear the debate. Every time the conversation happened, Steve seemed a little more open, said Levinson. There were free-wheeling discussions at four board meetings. Job soon figured out that there was a way to have the best of both worlds. He would permit outsiders to write apps, but they would have to meet strict standards be tested and approved by Apple, and be sold only through the iTunes store. It was a way to reap the advantage of empowering thousands of software developers while retaining enough control to protect the integrity of the iPhone and the simplicity of the customer experience. It was an absolutely magical solution that hit the sweet spot, said Levinson. It gave us the benefits of openness, while retaining end-to-end control. The App Store for the iPhone opened on iTunes in July 2008. The billionth download came nine months later. By the time the iPad went on sale in April 2010, there were 185,000 available iPhone apps. Most could also be used on the iPad, although they didn't take advantage of the bigger screen size but in less than five months, developers had written 25,000 new apps that were specifically configured for the iPad. By July 2011, there were 500,000 apps for both devices, and there had been more than 15 billion downloads of them. The App Store created a new industry overnight. In dorm rooms and garages, and at major media companies, entrepreneurs invented new apps. John Doerr's venture capital firm created an iFund of $200 million to offer equity financing for the best ideas. Magazines and newspapers that had been giving away their content for free saw one last chance to put the genie of that dubious business model back into the bottle. Innovative publishers created new magazines, books, and learning materials just for the iPad. For example, the high-end publishing house Callaway, which had produced books ranging from Madonna's Sex to Miss Spider's Tea Party, decided to burn the boats and give up print altogether to focus on publishing books as interactive apps. By June 2011, Apple had paid out $2.5 billion to app developers. The iPad and other app-based digital devices heralded a fundamental shift in the digital world. Back in the 1980s, going online usually meant dialing into a service like AOL, CompuServe, or Prodigy that provided a carefully curated walled garden filled with content plus some exit gates that allowed braver users access to the Internet at large. The second phase, beginning in the early 1990s, was the advent of browsers that allowed everyone to freely surf the Internet using the hypertext transfer protocols of the World Wide Web, which linked billions of sites. Search engines arose so that people could easily find the websites they wanted, The release of the iPad portended a new model. Apps resembled the walled gardens of old. The creators could charge fees and offer more functions to the users who downloaded them. But the rise of apps also meant that the openness and linked nature of the web were sacrificed. Apps were not as easily linked or searchable. Because the iPad allowed the use of both apps and web browsing, It was not at war with the web model, but it did offer an alternative for both the consumers and the creators of content. Publishing and Journalism With the iPod, Jobs had transformed the music business. With the iPad and its app store, he began to transform all media, from publishing to journalism to television and movies. Books were an obvious target, since Amazon's Kindle had shown there was an appetite for electronic books. So Apple created an iBooks store, which sold electronic books the way the iTunes store sold songs. There was, however, a slight difference in the business model. For the iTunes store, Jobs had insisted that all songs be sold at one inexpensive price, initially 99 cents. Amazon's Jeff Bezos had tried to take a similar approach with eBooks, insisting on selling them for at most $9.99. Jobs came in and offered publishers what he had refused to offer record companies. They could set any price they wanted for their wares in the iBooks store, and Apple would take 30%. Initially, that meant prices were higher than on Amazon. Why would people pay Apple more? That won't be the case, Jobs answered, when Walt Mossberg asked him that question at the iPad launch event. The price will be the same. He was right. The day after the iPad launch, Jobs described to me his thinking on books. Amazon screwed it up. It paid the wholesale price for some books, but started selling them below cost at $9.99. The publishers hated that. They thought it would trash their ability to sell hardcover books at $28. So before Apple even got on the scene, some booksellers were starting to withhold books from Amazon. So we told the publishers, we'll go to the agency model where you set the price and we get our 30%, and yes, the customer pays a little more, but that's what you want anyway. But we also asked for a guarantee that if anybody else is selling the books cheaper than we are, then we can sell them at the lower price too. So they went to Amazon and said, You're going to sign an agency contract, or we're not going to give you the books. Jobs acknowledged that he was trying to have it both ways when it came to music and books, he had refused to offer the music companies the agency model and allow them to set their own prices. Why? Because he didn't have to. But with books, he did. We were not the first people in the books business, he said. Given the situation that existed, what was best for us was to do this Aikido move and end up with the agency model, and we pulled it off. Right after the iPad launch event, Jobs traveled to New York in February 2010 to meet with executives in the journalism business.